Welcome to the 49th Meal Podcast. My name is Mitchell Howe and I am your host. I'm going to take you along a journey throughout the state of Alaska where we will meet the men and women that make the food that you love. All right, everyone. Welcome to the 49th Meal. This week we are talking with Salty Lady Seafood Company. I'm really excited about this interview as a chef and a fat guy. I love oysters and seafood, so I will let them introduce themselves. Hi, thanks for having me on. My name is Maida, and I own Salty Lady Seafood Company here in Juneau. We are working hard to grow sustainable, yummy seafood for our community. And what type of seafoods are you growing? We currently have oysters out at our farm. Uh, We've dappled in gooey ducks, and we did not succeed uh, in part because of a heavy muscle set and in part because we've got a little bit colder waters here than where they normally would grow. Um, We've also added kelp to our permit so that we can try our hand at growing some of that for barnacle uh, for their kelp salsa. But we are focusing our efforts uh, and our time right now on our oysters. And how how does that process work? I mean, like I've seen different TV shows like Andrew Zimmerman has been to an oyster farm. Um, Anthony Bodine, I think, went to one on his show. But how's that process work? Well, first, if you decide that you want to start an oyster farm, you go to the state and you figure out where you can get a Tideland lease based on site suitability and other uses. And you pick where you want your farm site to be. And one of the key things is accessibility. You know, you don't want to have to spend 20 hours on the boat to get to and from your site because getting your product off of your site then is going to become less feasible. Um, And then once you fill out and apply for a lease from the state, you generally at this point have to wait for up to a year or two to get your lease from the state. Um, They're working on speeding up that process, but then when you get your lease, then you set your anchors and you lay the foundation for your farm. And then you work on getting all the gear and equipment that you need. Uh, None of it's actually local. So you have to either go to Washington or Canada to get your grow out gear and you decide what methods you want to utilize, get the gear you need, deploy it, and then you bring your seed onto your farm site. And our seed that we currently uh, get is, uh, we've got some from Hawaii, some from Tokine Bay, and some from um, Nockety. So we've got three different sources that we've gotten seed from. And this year, I think we intend to purchase, again, from Tokine Bay and from Nockety. And then we grow the oysters. We handle them. We handle them lots. We, the more, the better for our little babies. We try to um, shake our bags, flip them. They float on the surface. And so at least once a week, we try to flip our bags around so that they can have one surface. They sit on the surface of the water so that they can kind of have one side air dry and that helps kill off all of the fouling that would pr- prohibit good nutrient flow. And then we sort our oysters a few times each summer so that they're sorted and organized by size. And they grow a lot happier uh, that way when they're not commingled with large oysters. So the babies like to be with the babies and the big guys like to be with the big guys. So our goal is to handle, be out there working on the farm. And hopefully soon we'll have them out at the market here so we can sell them to people locally within the next month. That's so awesome. So when you say seed, uh, are you talking like baby oysters or? Yeah, yeah, baby oysters. It's actually called spat. Um, And then the spat is 
so it's, it's, I guess eyed larvae, eyed larvae, and then we have spat, and then we have juvenile oysters, and then more market ready. So we're primarily, I suppose, getting more juvenile oysters, um, but we refer to it as seed. When it comes from a source um, that has been handling them and growing them in a flupsy, um, which is like a floating upweller system. They, they basically create this nursery system for all the little babies to hang out where they get to grow in this nice and controlled environment. So they grow faster and stronger and healthier. They have lower mortality rates. And then they ship those off in fish boxes to the different farms. And you have to get permits through the state for every bit of transport of seed to verify that it's a certified source um, so that we don't end up creating problems for the natural existing critters out at our farm site. We don't want to introduce um, anything that could uh, negatively impact the growth of all the existing, you know, sea anemones and mussels and stuff. So anyhow, yep, we, we get our seed and everybody in the state primarily orders their seed. Some farmers grow their own, they are, their own seed from eyed larvae. It takes a lot more equipment and effort, tanks of algae and stuff. Okay, and how many how many farmers uh, oyster farmers are there up here? I guess I, I know a lot about the obviously up in Alaska. We're very controversial with uh, farm raised salmon, right? Um, so right. how how big is the oyster farming market up here? So when we talk about mariculture in Alaska, mariculture does not include fin fish farming, and as far as uh, oyster farms go in Alaska, there are lots of permits. I want to say there's upwards. I don't even want to take a guess because I probably will get it <laughs> wrong. But what I will tell you is farmers that are actually selling, producing and selling product, be it oysters or mussels, I'd say there's between 26 and 28 farms across the state that are currently selling their product to market. However, we have six farms that are producing the majority of the revenue for the state. So we've really got six top producer, producers growing all the oysters in the state, though there are 26 that are, are permitted to sell product. Okay, and what what got you started in this? I mean, it kind of seems like a very niche market. It is. Um, it, it It's not for the faint of heart, for sure. And how I got started was I've been a photographer for the last eight years. And as my oldest son started to kind of hit the um, the teenage, you know, he started to approach the teenage years and started hearing OK Boomer. <laughs> And I recognize, <laughs> all right, we've, I've got to come up with a business plan that incorporates my kids. And that's not going to happen with my photography business. I'm working so much in the summer on my computer and my kids are on the back burner. And I, I started to feel like this window of opportunity to do something really unique that would provide my kids with a, a kind of an incredible Southeast Alaskan childhood experience. That window was starting to close as my son became older. And I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know I wanted to be outside. I know I wanted a family business that could grow with my family. My youngest is still five and my oldest is turning 13 this August. And so I knew that I wanted something that allowed us to be together, start small and grow as my children grew and they, something that they could be with me while we're doing. Like I wanted to be outside and ideally I wanted to be on the water if we could, but still doing it in a safe way. I didn't want to be by myself, leaving my husband and traveling far distances. So 
my husband being involved with Juno Economic Development Council and Southeast Conference, he immediately recognized the opportunity for mariculture. And so two years ago, when I approached this topic with my husband, he thought, well, you're really good at growing stuff. Why don't you start a farm? And I thought, all right, I will. And then within three months, I signed documents to transfer, do a, a lease reassignment for the only permitted farm site in Juneau. And that was at the end of April, 2018. And then by May, so the conversation started in February. By the end of April, I submitted documents. And by May, we set anchors on our farm and I got our first set of seed in August. So we were able to really jumpstart things by getting a pre-permitted site that had been permitted since 2003 or 2000 and yeah, 2003. And so that allowed us, we had an operating permit um, that allowed us to get started and really get ahead of things. Um, and so now we have product ready. We have product to get to the market in Juneau. Um, yeah. that's how I kind of ended up getting started with it. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's a, uh... That, it's kind of really interesting to hear going from something completely unrelated photography to farming and oysters. Absolutely. Very different. <laughs> and Very what's different. been, what, what's been some of the challenges of getting started, especially it sounds like you guys kind of dove in head first and went a hundred miles an hour at it. Mm -hmm. So the biggest challenges I'd say were the permitting process. Um, that's really, really arduous. And I submitted transfer documents at the end of April and our lease assignment finally happened. Um, I want to say it was last spring. So it took over a year. And in that time, I was operating our farm under the previous owner's permit. And he, he, had sold us the lease he wanted to hand it off and it was difficult to build a farm uh without having to drag him along you know he didn't he didn't need to be a part of that process but it was difficult for the state to recognize me as an authorized agent in order to be authorized to make the necessary changes to build out the farm so that part was challenging and then just physically i think one of the challenges that we are finding is getting a gear system set up and in place that doesn't require constant maintenance all winter there's a lot of energy out at our site um and we have pretty good protection uh from the south and uh from the north we have one little section of our long lines that seems to be taking quite a beating and so just keeping our oysters out our farm site through the winter it, it takes going out every week or two and making repairs where repairs need to get made and checking on things and making sure that everything is still where it's supposed to be and is not on the brink of breaking or falling loose. So that's, that's been a challenge that I think we kind of knew we were going to face just because of the environment we're working in and the, the location. I mean, there's not a lot of great protection in Southeast Alaska and certainly not in Juneau. Which makes <laughs> That's it really true. Difficult. Yeah, it makes it really difficult to find a suitable site because you don't want the water to be too deep. You can't have any other existing uses. So we're really happy. We love our farm site. Um, it just, you know, it, it takes really kind of refining and honing in what your methods are and finding a system that that works. And and each site is very different. So what works for one person up in Homer might not work for me whatsoever you know it every spot is different and the currents that flow through where the prevailing winds come from all that yeah no i have uh 
I haven't been to Juneau too much besides in and out of the airport, but I lived for a year and a half, give or take, down in Sitka. So I, I know those those southeast waters are they they can be pretty treacherous. Right. Now, yep. um, how big is your farm? Like you keep saying farm. I, I know probably a lot of people think of a land farm, you know, tens to hundreds of acres. Right. Um, so I actually have one of the smallest farms in the state, which it also poses its own challenges. <laughs> um, I have my oyster parcel is just about a half an acre. Uh, my farm site in total is one acre and I would like to expand. And as we built it, we've really tried to kind of let people know that this is, this is where we're at. We don't intend on encroaching in anybody's space, but we have to make sure that we are doing a really good job of sharing the cove that we're in with the commercial fishermen in the summers who use it for anchorage at night. And so trying to make sure we end up with the space that we need while also making sure that everybody else that utilizes space in our area has exactly what they need, um, which is kind of a delicate balance. And so we don't intend on growing much at our site, but we would like to try to find opportunities to get the space that we need to actually have the volume of product that we would like in order to feed our community, right? I'd like to be able to have enough oysters that when people in Juneau come and ask, I can say yes. And in order to do that, we have to just really be doing our best to utilize the space we have, but thinking big picture, long-term, where's another spot that we could potentially get a lease to, to have at least for a certain stages of our processes, have oysters grow there, and then we could transfer them over to our farm site where then they would finish their grow out um, where we've got, we know our waters out at our farm site are really clean um, and, and, perfect for growing oysters. The oysters that come out of our farm site are so good. Um, I know I've seen uh, the pictures you were posting on Facebook and like I said I love oysters. I grew up uh, down on the coast of Washington and some of my fondest memories are with my dad going out with a hammer and a screwdriver to different oyster areas and just eating raw oysters straight off straight out of the water. And yeah. I will say in, in Alaska, you have to be very, very careful about PSP, which is one of the reasons why um, we test all of our product because in the summer months, six months out of the year, we are testing our product every week in order to get it to market. And annually, that would be 30 tests a year. And um, it's important. It's actually crucial to make sure that the product that we put out on the market is safe for human consumption. Just like you wouldn't want your kids to run out to the beach here and go collect mussels in July and just start eating them um, or butter clams because you don't know whether or not there'll be an Alexandrian bloom. And so in Alaska, I think we have to be extra careful and we don't have a state um, that patrols the beaches to ensure the safety of the shellfish that we grow. But we have so much shellfish here that people could be utilizing and improving food security um, and harvesting, but there's no great mechanism to test except for farmers who are on the ground and are doing these tests. And when we talk about challenges in the state, that is actually one of the, um, another one of the really big challenges is the PSP testing program um, proposed cutting all of the funding for PSP testing 
and asking farmers to pay it. And that would actually shut down all the farms in the state, um, except for maybe one or two. And we're not certain how they would carry the burden or bear the burden of that fee, which the state is currently saying is $457,700, which would be about $24,000 per farmer. And that's more than anybody can afford to pay out of pocket. Um, and so one of the things that we've really looked at is how do each of the other states handle it? And you mentioned Washington and being able to go to the beach and harvest oysters. Well, Washington patrols their shorelines and they do closures of areas when the areas are testing hot, meaning they, are, they have toxic levels of Alexandrium in the water. So for us in Alaska, uh, relying on the farmers to ensure the safety of the shellfish is, is a really great way to do it. However, if the state uh, doesn't fund the program, then we won't actually have uh, a shellfish industry, which is kind of unfortunate. So we're still waiting and hoping that uh, the businesses in the state continue to operate and that we continue to be able to feed our communities safe and healthy oysters that have lots of zinc. <laughs> <laughs> They're really good for you. And zinc, yeah. as you know, is, is a good immune booster. It's good for, you know, helping combat uh, seasonal flus and colds and other viruses. Yeah, no, I didn't even think about that because I, I guess I've just grown up with it. So used to hearing a uh, red tide or um, as you were saying, different algae blooms that you just, they close off that part. I didn't even think about this. So as an oyster farmer, how, how do you guys have to deal with, how do you deal with um, different rises in the, in the water as, stuff like that happens does it just completely decimate the oysters you have or is there a way to protect yourselves or how does that process work it's it's a very delicate process and you have to be really careful because um nobody wants no farmer wants to put a product on the market that is going to in any way negatively impact somebody hurt them harm them make them sick so that's why we have this federally mandated program in place across the nation so that everybody has to be sure before their product hits the market that their product is safe for human consumption. So we are regulated by the government. The government, the federal government comes up with the schedule. We test and what we do is we pull our product that we are going to take to market. The product sits in, in cold storage. It sits in refrigeration, ready to go. And while it waits for 24 hours, we send off a cooler to the environmental health lab. And the environmental health lab tests the product to make sure that it is safe for consumption. And then when they give the green light, all the product goes and gets distributed to the market. If they say your product is not safe for human consumption, then your product goes back into the water and you have to wait. Oysters will naturally feed on the phytoplankton and the algae in the water. And as they, as that um, algae shifts and changes, you know, it can, it can depurate over the course of a week or two, you can have an Alexandrian bloom, your oysters can process it. And then once that Alexandrium moves past your area, then they'll, um, they'll flush all of that Alexandrium out of their system. Just like as you, as a human, you eat food. Well, that food doesn't stay in your system forever. You process it, you use it, you make energy out of it, and then you discard the waste. Well, it's the same thing with um, shellfish. They filter feed on the food in their environment. And as the food changes, 
they process and eliminate the waste and they get new food in their system. So then what we would need to do is, is again, test our product and get multiple good tests that say, nope, it's safe, we're good to go. So once we can show that we've had a couple clean tests, then we can get our product back out to market without getting rid of it at all. All it means is that our customers have to just wait and have to have a little bit of patience while we wait for mother nature to decide that it is time for us to get back on the market, so to speak. Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that as you were talking about it, because I know, um, especially with all the climate change and all the other effects happening, you, you we hear a lot in the media about the effects on the water, so that kind of got my, my gears turning there on it, because, I mean, being a chef, I never really thought about it. We place an order with our purveyor, and they come and deliver it to us, and that's about the most we really think about it. Right. Yeah. So, so now, the what's the what's the reaction been from the local community? Like I said earlier, I know Alaska is very very sensitive to anything farmed in the water, especially mm -hmm. salmon. <laughs> mm -hmm. But with something like oysters, what's been their reaction from the local community? There is a lot of excitement. Out at our farm site, we've received 100% community support, which is wonderful. I think everybody's really excited to feel a sense of food security here in Juneau, and they want to support locally grown foods. And um, oysters are a, a, particularly in Alaska, are really good. Like the, the quality and the flavor and taste of oysters grown up here are, are some of the best in the world. And so having that right here in everybody's backyard in this community, I think is really exciting. I think having good public outreach and making sure that everybody understands what our big picture long-term growth goals look like, and uh, knowing that we aren't intending on coming in and building this massive billion dollar corporation that is going to completely cover the whole coastline. Like that's not our vision. That's not our goal. That is no part of what our plan is. Kind of helps people feel really, really positive about what we're doing and how good it is. It's really, it's the type of business that improves the quality of the local economy. And that's something that everybody can feel really good about. So we've received a lot of support. And the fact that oysters are farmed is not, it's not the same as farming fish. It, I think that would be, when we talk about equivalencies, I'd say it's the difference between harvesting locally grown vegetables and greens versus wild greens. Like you, you can go out and get sea beans and you can go out and get kelp and you can process it and eat it. Or you can get locally grown vegetables from somebody who's doing it hydroponically or in a greenhouse. And I think that's more when we talk about oysters and, and this type of farm seafood, that's more what we're looking at doing. It's not genetically modified. It's not chemically grown. It's just using science to cause shellfish to spawn and reproduce and then collecting the babies and then growing them in our, our waters where we aren't feeding them anything. They purely go on um, you know, the nutrients that are in our nutrient dense waters here in our area. So everybody's okay. excited. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Cause, uh, it kind of answered where my next question was going about kind of the difference between farming shellfish to, uh, reg fin fish. And you kind of knocked that one out of the park. Cause I know a lot of it is the controversy of how they're fed and all the hormones and chemicals and everything else mm -hmm. used. Yep, totally. 
And so now when you, um, when, when you first get your seeds, how long does it take to go from seed to market? Well, if you, if you start from the propagation stage, it's about three years. So from the time you um, have the oysters release their parts and they co-mingle and they create babies, right? From that stage on, it's about three years. I am getting seed that's, well, I've gotten a handful of different seed, but my goal is to get seed that's a little bit bigger. So it has to spend less time on our farm site. And um, for us, it's about two to two and a half years if we have somebody that does the first six months, you know, at their Flupsy, for instance. If the oysters spend about six months in a nursery, then we'll have them for about two and a half years before they're ready for market. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause, um, and about how many oysters do you get like in a year or I, I guess like the quantity, what, what can you, or is your goal to be able to put out in a year? Well, and like I talked about with my limited space capacity, my goal is to sell around a hundred to 150,000 oysters a year. Um, and that is if we are doing a really good job of um, utilizing the whole water column at our farm site. So we can't grow outward because that would put us outside of our parcel. But what we can do is we can grow down, right? We can suspend stacks of oysters in the water. So yeah, our, our goal is around 150,000 oysters a year. That is a lot of oysters. <laughs> it is a lot of oysters. <laughs> we want to be able to meet market demand, but I also don't want to um, burn out my family and create a monster that takes on a life of itself. So trying to find that intricate balance is important to us. I, I could see how that, that balance could swing real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They grow especially, fast. <laughs> especially being out on the water because uh people that might not be used to the water even on a calm day being out on a boat all day it, it can beat the hell out of you if you're having oh, to do yeah. it day after day <laughs> yeah and it's really a, a lot of labor like you think about um doing repetitive motion work this is a very laborsome job our bags of oysters in the summer when they get full we've got hundreds of them and each one is can be between 20 and 30 pounds and picking up bag after bag and dumping it and sorting and bending and lifting. It's a lot. And so our, one of our big goals is to mechanize our processes. And unfortunately we have this global pandemic happening. And so that's kind of impacted everybody in the state. There's not as many oysters hitting the market right now with the closure of restaurants, which means less security in, in our revenue that we had wanted. And so our intent this summer had been to build out the next phase so that we could continue to grow and mechanize. And now with everything that's happening with the potential budget cuts for testing and with the COVID-19, we've, we've kind of put all of our plans for building out on the back burner and we are focusing on manual labor. <laughs> so, and I'm unfortunately not going to be able to have my my crew that I had wanted for this summer working out at our farm site with all of the social distancing and the efforts needed to flatten the curve and so we'll see how it goes I'm really trying to make sure that I get our us set up for success while minimizing the wear and tear on my body and the amount of 
heavy lifting I make my boys do. <laughs> so, yeah. So now, um, speaking of the the budget cuts, because I, I even living up here, I haven't heard much about that part. So is this a state budget cut or is this a federal budget cut? It is. It's a state budget cut. And they had proposed this summer, starting in July, asking us to pay 50% of the um, the Environmental Health Labs PSP testing program budget. And by next July, we were they intended on us paying in full for it. However, that that sentiment is not supported by legislators. Everybody wants to see this industry succeed. And there's been a lot of effort in, and money and time put into building the mariculture industry. There's um, been HB 116 and HB 41 and all of these measures taken to help promote and support this industry as it's been recognized as one of the greatest economic opportunities in our state. And so when this proposed budget cut came out, we were all pretty floored and frustrated because one of the reasons why we bought into our business was because we we believed that the state wanted mariculture and they were behind it. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to not just do something good for us, but to do something good for our community and our state. However, what we have found is the funds are still in the budget for this program, but what they've done instead is changed in regulation the cost of each test so that they are now capable of billing us. Um, and they're saying right now $312 in regulation is what they're going to charge for each test. In the past, in regulation, each test was said to cost $125, but they were really only charging that to recreational harvesters that were interested in finding out what was in the shellfish they were harvesting. And for shellfish farmers, we have a whole lot of other fees that we pay for the state and for DEC and for DNR. And so those those tests were being covered. However, if they were to still charge the $312 per test per week, it would really do a massive amount of de uh, damage to the growth of the mariculture industry and the shellfish industry, because uh, that's really more than a lot of people can afford to pay per week. Um, so Yeah, I know. That, that just seems a, a crazy number. I know, especially even when this whole quarantine uh, social distancing is lifted, it isn't like restaurants are going to be full the next day. Right. So especially with all this going on now, is there, um, for, for our listeners that are up here in Alaska, we do have quite a large following. Um, is the best way to help with that to reach out to their local representatives or how, how can the, our listeners help support you and all the other mariculture farmers? Well, they're currently accepting letters to DEC until the second week in April. And so if anybody has any interest in writing uh, DEC to let them know they, um, that they want the state to continue supporting shellfish farming, you can reach out to me. My email is maida at saltyladyseafood.co. Or you can find me on Facebook and message me there and I can forward you the email to send a letter to. Um, I think that would probably be the best way to show your support right now and let the state know that that change to that fee is not something they want put on the farmers because in turn what it means is either we have to charge more for our product or we can't, we simply can't afford to get it to our customer. And that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help improve food security. That doesn't help 
grow this industry that has so much potential to become such a great uh, source of revenue for the state and helping balance our deficit. So don't hesitate. Again, that email is made at saltyladyseafood.co or you, like I said, you can find me on Facebook and reach out to me there and I can forward you on the uh, department of, I think it was D. Well, it's DEC. I don't want to say the name because I don't want to inundate on um, a podcast, but reach out. Let me know you're interested and I can send you a form letter uh, that has the contact information to forward on. And for all of our listeners, if you click on our icon, wherever you are listening to this from, whatever platform, that will take you into our show notes. And we will have that information for Meta on our show notes. I mean, this is something I'm just learning about and I'm already getting pretty worked up and feeling pretty passionate about it because, I mean, especially in this day and age, they're, look at our oils crashing to nothing. Alaska needs all the revenue we can and it just seems like unnecessary red hurdles. Right, right. And if you look at the global scale, like for us, we've spent a lot of time researching what does it look like uh, in the lower 48? What do these costs look like? How does each state manage this in order to have a shellfish program? Because every state has to have a shellfish authority, which is DEC, right? For us, the Department of Environmental Conservation manages the health and safety um, side of, of food production. So every state, what we have found across the board, unanimously covers the testing program to ensure the safety um, to the citizens that live there and consume the shellfish. And so what we're just asking for is to be on a level playing field with the rest of the United States. We can't grow an industry and have the state charge us $24,000 a year. Uh, there's no incentive for anybody to build a farm in Alaska or to invest here. And there's no incentive for people to sell or buy product from Alaska if it's going to cost an exorbitant amount more than it does anywhere else in the world. So the state, we need the state to continue to recognize how important this is for them to maintain their shellfish authority and to cover those costs is in order for us to be able to produce a product that can stand on its own globally. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because I know, I mean, every guest, if anyone's listening to this episode, the show, it doesn't matter what the product is. We already up here in Alaska, we face an uphill climb with our shipping cost, our logistics cost. All of that as it is, and now to to ask the the small business owner that politicians love to love to parade out on camera to cover twenty five thousand that's a cost of a new car yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I, there's very few small business owners I know that can just decide they're going to go buy a new car every year. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head there when you talked about how much it costs. When we're up in Alaska, just remember that when I buy my equipment from Canada, it has to get on a, a barge. They, they send it down, pick it up from Washington, bring it back up to Canada. Then they send it back down to Seattle, and then it comes up to Juneau. So in order for me to get everything that I need from the company in Nanaimo, B.C., that's the process. And that takes a lot of fuel and a lot of cost. And so some of the equipment I'm buying from Seattle so that it can come straight up, but they don't have everything that we need in order for us to have the full system in order to produce enough shellfish for our community. So in, unless we can get people producing the gear and equipment here in Alaska, we, we are stuck with a, a large amount of 
costs associated with shipping uh, the equipment that we need to operate. Yeah, I know when we moved, even moving from uh, Sitco to uh, the Sitco, Sitka to Palmer, it was going to cost us like eight grand to put everything on the barge because it had to do the same route, go from Sitka to Seattle, transfer to another barge, and then come up to uh, Anchorage. And so we ended up having to just sell off or leave a lot of stuff behind just because of the cost of it. And that's just a family of three household stuff. I can't imagine the cost for industrial size equipment that you guys would need. Right. Yeah. And it, so I should clarify, Canada has a good shellfish industry happening. And so they have production of gear and equipment. However, they don't have everything. And so when they have to place orders to consolidate their equipment that they produce with equipment in Washington, that's why they're sending down to Washington, back up to consolidate, <laughs> then back down. And then it is just a lot. <laughs> And it takes weeks and a lot of planning and organization and a lot of costs. So we really, our goal is to produce a really high quality product that, that we can feel good about, that our community can feel good about, but that doesn't, I don't want to have to charge an arm and a leg for my product, but it, we are trying to grow a premium product. And so in order to have an actual business model that's viable, I think our goal is to focus on our local sales here in our community and really try to hit that um, and try to create a, a really high quality uh, petite oyster that people can just devour and love. <laughs> so now um, one thing I really do like to ask a lot of my guests and um, I'm really ex excited to hear your answer for this. With such a rapid changing world, Let's take out the political side of the testing, say all that works out in a perfect world. We know it don't, but we'll, we'll pretend. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see your business and your industry going in the next five to 10 years? My business, just for my brand, I would love to, I would love to maintain a small family run business, but try to diversify a little bit of, of what we're doing so that it, I can actually generate an income doing this and not just have it be intrinsically based. Um, and so for us, sorry. Oh no, you're fine. Well, our listeners know that uh, we, we do not record in a, in a isolated soundproof studio. If you've heard yeah. any of the other shows, Life goes on and we just record with it. <laughs> okay, perfect. So so my goal would be to, to, I would like to get a couple different products at my farm site. I've also got mussels. I, I didn't add that earlier, but we have, we are in a prolific mussel bed and they are there whether we want them there, there or not. So I would like to diversify <laughs> my marketable product by incorporating mussels into my sellables. And then um, another option for us being in Juno with this really, Right now, it's not a booming tourism industry um, and likely not going to be a huge one for this summer. But in the future, we would like to be able to do something where we could um, have do some type of a happy pairing with tourists being able to check out what a micro scale um, farm model looks like, see how oysters are grown, learn about our company and try oysters. Um, and so we would love to be able to do something like that. It's it's going to take a little bit more regulatory hurdles to get to that stage, but 
that is where we see ourselves in the next 10 years is I would love to have my kids coming home from college in the summer and helping run farm tours. And I'd like their friends to be able to work at the farm and their cousins and then um, have us grow a business that ideally our kids would go off, learn about mariculture and learn how to really um, innovate this industry so that we can become more efficient and so that we can become smarter and better and find ways to grow food that we can all feel good about in this state instead of spending so much money on freight and shipping our food up where it loses its nutritional value. Like being able to grow something that provides a sense of security for our community when we're faced with things like global pandemics or natural disasters. Um, we're really vulnerable here in Juneau. And so I would love my kids to, to learn more about this. I'd love to create opportunities for other kids in our community to come and learn about mariculture and get excited about it so they can go out and go to college and come up with new innovative ways to take this industry to the next level so that we can, as a, a, a state, build it into this um, industry that Alaska feels good about that allows us to compete on a global market and on a global scale, but while doing it really sustainably in a way that shows the rest of the world this is something that we can do and we can do it responsibly and we can help produce seafood that that is good for the whole world right I think that would be big picture feel good <laughs> goal no that that that's amazing because I know just listening to you talk it makes me wish I was down in Juneau uh to be able to learn more about this and I think it's actually something that I'm going to spend some of my personal time kind of researching and trying to educate myself because I know with uh, being up here in Alaska, we've heard the rumors, thank God they, they're not true, but they've talked about shutting ports down that all of our food and stuff comes up from. So I think it's just amazing to see so many people say the system's broke. The government's not going to fix it. Let's fix it ourselves on the community level. Right. And it, it, it's really inspiring to, to hear about this. I mean, I know a lot of us probably take for granted uh, everyday food items that the wrong situation hits that could change for us. Absolutely. And I think it takes something like what we're faced with right now for people to recognize just how vulnerable we are and how important it is to focus on what we can be doing here locally, right? And supporting those people that are here in our communities that are trying to, to build something that, that helps everybody. I think it's hard, to, it's hard to know when you have everything that you need and you can get it and it's affordable. It's hard to, it's hard to recognize the weak points but even when we look at the nation, at our medical supplies, you know, there's things that we need and we can't get them because we don't produce them domestically. So then we have to import them. And when imports stop, that leaves us with shortages of things that are, are, are absolutely necessary in order to ensure the health and safety of all of the citizens in the United States. And so when we look at some of these smaller communities and we talk about food security, I think it's, it's become very apparent why it matters that we are able to produce our own food. Yeah, I know um, the medical thing is a great example because uh, as I was saying off air, me and my wife were suspected confirmed just because they did not even have enough tests up here while 
the rest of the country was starting to test, we still didn't have enough up here. So, and obviously medical is important, but food's just, just as important up there. So it totally resonates with me. So now for people that want to get a hold of you, I know we've already said your email, but if you want to uh, go ahead and plug your social medias one more time, so people that hopefully are getting inspired by this episode can uh, reach out to you. Hey, yeah. So again, my name is Maida, and I own Salty Lady Seafood Company here in Juneau, and you can find me on Facebook at Salty Lady Seafood Company. Um, and just one last thing I want to say is if you get notice of a farm potentially in your area, support it. Don't, don't take it as an opportunity to oppose something that's really good for your community. I think people still have a mentality of not in my backyard. I don't want to look out and see buoys on the water. I'm okay if I know they're crab pots or mooring buoys, but the idea that somebody would grow food in my area is not is not welcomed by all. And I would encourage you to start thinking outside of the box. Stop looking at it as an intrusion or an obstruction of your view and start looking at it as an opportunity to do something really great for your community and to support something that is good for everybody. And I think that's going to take a a huge community-wide and statewide effort for people to stop this fin fish mentality or not in my backyard mentality and recognize what a great opportunity we have to come together to build this industry as a state. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, because I know, um, especially, <laughs> I, I always say it a lot that Alaska has hospitality like nobody else has seen, but we also are can be very stubborn up here and don't always like change. So it's great to hear, hear somebody talk about that, that it does Absolutely. take a mind shift, a complete mind shift and attitude shift to make something like this happen. It does. And it's not easy. It's not like we're just trying to take advantage of some somebody or something like we're working our tails off to do the right thing. And it's not easy when you have people fighting against you along the way. And that's something I think um, if people do check our show notes, I'm going to do some talking with Meta here and get some links up on the show notes to kind of explain this whole process to everyone. Cause I'm sure Like I said, for me, it's something completely new. I'm actually pretty energized about doing some of my own research. So we're going to, I'll talk with Meta off air and we will get some links up for people to look in further into this. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for educating us on this. Thank you. I appreciate it a ton. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the interview, please go ahead and be sure to check the show notes so you can follow our guests on their social media. And we also ask that you please give us a thumbs up or a rating wherever you are listening to this podcast. And if you did not like the show, well, just go ahead and listen to something else then. Nobody needs a negative Nancy. Thank you for listening to my daddy, Hugh Ladle. 